This is the Monday, December 31st, 2018 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes for a brand new episode every other Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. In this episode, our time machine travels back to a two-mile sliver of land in New York City's East River. The Lenape tribe called it Minahanoc. The Dutch knew it as Hog Island, back when the city was New Amsterdam, before the arrival of the English. And it more recently bore the name Welfare Island before finally adopting Franklin Delano Roosevelt's handle in 1971. But to the Victorians, it was Blackwell's Island. A dreaded name. A name that would send shivers down your spine. Blackwell's was synonymous with insanity, illness, poverty prisons, and purgatory right here on Earth. You could be shipped off to suffer there for a variety of crimes, real and imagined or even for something as simple as being a woman walking alone at night on the street. Or if a judge was just in a bad mood that day, you had the bad luck to appear in his courtroom. Maybe you were somebody too poor to make bail. Off to Blackwell's. Say you were an immigrant who didn't speak English. Blackwell's was the place for you. No wonder Charles Dickens described the place as a lounging, listless madhouse. Joining us in the asylum to tell the true story of those who preceded us in the great story of Gotham is Stacy Horn. She brings us Damnation Island, poor, sick, mad, and criminal in 19th century New York. Tens of thousands lived and died on Blackwell's Island, but they've fallen out of the city's memory. The asylums where they breathed their last breaths on earth, erased by apartment complexes, the Roosevelt Island Tramway, where you may have seen Spider-Man bouncing around, and just the March of Time. Stacy Horn's book is the first contemporary investigative account of life on Blackwell's, which she delivers by digging into the records of reformers, reporters, and journalists like the intrepid Nellie Bly. Stacy is the author of five nonfiction books, including Imperfect Harmony. She's the founder of the social network Echo, and you've heard her commentaries on NPR's All Things Considered. She lives where else? In New York City. Stacy proudly declares among her credentials, Cat Butler. Not surprisingly, Stacy works at the ASPCA in New York City, and when I found that out, not only did I have to have her on the show, but it made me feel a little bit envious and also nostalgic because I used to work at the Animal Medical Center over on the east side of Manhattan, where I'd look out my window and see, you guessed it, the Roosevelt Island Tramway and the former Blackwell's Island just beyond the East River. Find our guest online or feline at stacyhorn.com or at stacyhorn on Twitter. Okay, now that we've gotten our smallpox inoculation... Let's join Stacy Horn and board the East River Ferry for Damnation Island. I'm joined on the line by Stacy Horn, author of Damnation Island, Poor, Sick, Mad, and Criminal in 19th Century New York. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with the History Author Show. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, I picked up Damnation Island, and it drew me in right away as a really well-done piece of nonfiction. It 
wasn't something that was sensationalized, even though there are many sensational stories that dominated the press at the time. It's also not salacious at all. You have really the perfect note, pitch perfect, of capturing this and not condescending to the past, not leering here at people who are really at their worst, really suffering. You went out there, you found a piece of history, an untold story, and you kept digging like a miner. What was your first moment where you had that passion, you started reading about Blackwell's Island, and then you decided you're going to work at it and you're going to produce what I guess is your fifth book right here in Damnation Island? You know, I still can't believe I got to write this book. And actually, my original idea was to write a book based on the collections in the municipal archives. That's where a lot of the historical records from New York City are stored. And I put together a proposal for my publisher based on that. I took like pieces from some of the best collections to write about just the kind of thing that you could find there. I mean, it's a history nerd's paradise. <laughs> and my publishers looked at it and said, oh, you know, we like this, very interesting. But there was a piece in my proposal that mentioned Blackwell's Island. And they said, that's the best part. Why don't you just write a book about Blackwell's Island? Wow. And, you know, I was actually, you know, kicking myself. <laughs> I didn't think of that. But my first reaction was, I'd love to, but I'm sure there's a billion books about Blackwell's Island. I mean, there's so many people covering New York history. And I couldn't believe it when I found, like, I only found one contemporary children's book. And Nellie Bly's book about the lunatic asylum, and that was from the 19th century. I, I still wow. can't get over my luck. It is amazing. You said that you couldn't believe you get to write it. And I thought, I can't believe you had to write it. It is one of those things where, hey, there it is waiting in plain sight. It's a it's a big sliver there. Everybody knows it's, it's not as if it's been completely paved over. There's still remnants of it. You see when you drive down the FDR drive, you spot it. It's still there. It's used in movies like Spider-Man. It's, I would think, pretty well known. And yet all those stories are sitting there. Nobody had done what you did here. Exactly, exactly. It was just like this present that I happened upon and just was <laughs> lucky to get to write it. Well, we're lucky that we get to read it in someone else's hands. It could have just languished. It could never have been written for those reasons that I mentioned. You go about it in the way that people who listen will know I go about history. I, I don't want to look back and say, well, I'm better than these people because they were so bad. Things were so awful. You have a sympathy towards many of the people who were just overwhelmed here that were trying to do something good and just had their plans fail. Everybody can relate to that. And maybe when somebody puts on a lab coat or has the title of doctor or city planner, we we hold them to a higher standard. We don't understand that sometimes they might get flooded and they may fail when they try their best. The cliche is that hell, the road to hell, is paved with good intentions, and I thought of that here, reading Damnation Island. The tenements, today that term is synonymous with squalor and misery, and so many families packed in there, they, they'd rent out their fire escape and dying in fire. Well, originally, as you know, those tenements were meant to be a great new innovation in how people lived in cities. They yeah. were supposed to have air, and it would have been beautiful for exactly. them. And they did have indoor plumbing for a change, and they were, that was the aim of the tenements. And of course, they ended up not living up to that ideal dream. Yeah. So you have that here in Blackwell's Island. It was originally aimed to give the mentally troubled and what they called at the time the criminally lazy a state-of-the-art facility where they could get better. They had many ideas for that sort of treatment where they really thought they'd be treating them humanely. How did the idealistic dreams for Blackwell's Island turn into this nightmare that brings your title about Damnation Island? Well, just a, a little brief backstory. In the early 19th century, Bellevue, which is now famous as a public hospital, was also where New York City's lunatic asylum was, and there were a couple of penal institutions. The almshouse for the poor was there. And as a result of crowding all these different institutions in this one area, it was horribly overcrowded and inhumane. And so the city, you know, recognized the problem, acknowledged the problem, and thought about the best way to fix it. And so at the time, there was this new form of treatment for mental illness called moral treatment. 
And the idea was instead of throwing them in prison and straitjackets and and using treatments like bloodletting, we'll treat them with kindness and compassion and we'll place them in institutions and country-like settings away from the city, so away from the stress and temptations. So the city planners visited an asylum like this in Philadelphia and really researched it and spoke to consultants. And so the idea was we're going to buy Blackwell's Island, which they did, which was at the time privately owned in Blackwell's Island, which is now called Roosevelt Island, was a two-mile long, um, is a two-mile long island in the East River. But at the time, it was one house and a bunch of fruit orchards. So to them, you know, they were going to build replacement institutions on the island, and it was going to be sending these people to the country, to a sanctuary, and, and we would heal them if they were sick, reform them if they were if they lost their way and committed crimes, and everyone would get better, and they would come back to the city in better condition. So that was their good intentions. But they just, they made so many mistakes, but their four biggest, most fatal mistakes was they underestimated the number of poor, sick, mad, and criminal in New York City, how expensive it was going to be, how it just costs a lot of money to do right. And their idea of putting all these institutions and isolating these people away from the city, unfortunately, created this association in the public mind that all these groups of people, you know, people who were poor, people who were sick, people who were suffering from mental disorders, and people who were actually committed crimes, that they were all one in the same and they belonged together. So they were all guilty, they were all dangerous, and it's an association that persists to this day. Like people think the mentally ill are dangerous. The poor are essentially thieves in disguise. And they put these people, all these groups, under the charge of men who did not have the qualifications for the job, and they were in charge of both charitable and penal institutions together. How would you even have developed those skills also? There just hasn't been this studying yet. You write in Damnation Island about a bunch of the source material that they did draw upon, but they just didn't have the experiences. Think about how new even cities are with skyscrapers and this huge population. That's all new, and they're starting from scratch. So even if you did have the funding and even if you did have the best people in the field, the best people still might not know anything about this. They still might not be ready for this challenge. They were writing the law. They were writing the rules. They were writing the way to do it. And it's something that even here, 150 years later or so, we still don't get right. So Absolutely. it was hard to look back and expect them to have gotten all that perfect. Uh, even before you get things like the budget and the population, Absolutely. it's really hard to deal with people. But in this case, I'm not talking about the people who were actually on the island running the institutions, the people that went by various titles like superintendent, warden resident physician. I'm talking about the three commissioners who were appointed to run the Department of Public Charities and Correction. That's the department, the city department that ran the island. Those were all political appointments. And so these people had like no expertise. They were not doctors. They didn't have any kind of experience in these areas. And this is around the time of consolidation. It starts before, is that right? Consolidation of the city. Correct. And yeah. So even even more of a reason to hear is a whole new government trying to govern this massive city that's just had this shotgun marriage with Brooklyn before the turn of the 20th century. And all of those patronage jobs people are very familiar with, all the things that reformers like Theodore Roosevelt famously fought against. Those are just any jobs. In fact, New York City, at the time, they still had coroners. And for people that hear the term coroner, they hear medical examiner, think maybe of Quincy, M.E. Mm -hmm. Quincy was a doctor in the show who went on to become a medical examiner. Well, in these days and still in places today, that's just an appointed position. You could be anybody. And in New York City, you got paid for every body that you brought in basically to the morgue. So there was no incentive to sit there and try to figure out how did this person die? Was What was wrong with them? Is it a disease spreading? Anything like that. They just load them in their cart there, whip the horse, go on to the next body and try to turn them in like soda cans that you were getting a deposit on. So it is really something where you read Damnation Island, you bring yourself back to that moment, you peel off all these layers that we've had 
in the past century and realize the incredible, overwhelming challenge that they were facing just in having the equipment. Every small little thing would have been a huge challenge, and they just didn't have people that were equal to the task, and maybe nobody in the world at that time would have been equal to it. Well, I talk a little bit about the early days of the office that is now known as the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner and how unprofessional it was, and and you could quite literally buy um, findings in their examinations, and the mortality rate on Blackwell's Island was very high. Like, at any one time, there was, well, about forty to 50,000 people were admitted there yearly, and 1,000 people, roughly, on average, died there every year. And so there would be, you know, coroner's investigations and at a certain point, like it, I was going, how could they say that they died by normal means? And I just started researching. And that's when I learned in those days you could buy a finding from this department. Ugh. But the Department of Public Charities and Correction, they were very powerful. I just write about Blackwell's Island, but they were responsible for all the city charitable institutions and all the corrections institutions. And so even though I'm just talking about Blackwell's Island, there were charitable and correction institutions on Manhattan, Hart Island, Randall's Island, Ward Island. I mean, they were overseeing a lot of institutions and a lot of jobs. It was not the kind of power that anyone gives up easily. Also, because of that limited medical knowledge, they would always have those frustrating things in the obituaries or the cause of death where it would just say died of tired blood, things like this, because they really just didn't have names for it and they wouldn't know. And so even in the best of times that they were trying, the knowledge is very limited here. And the tools are also very limited. I jotted down as I was reading Damnation Island, some of these names for things, muffs, wristlets, and camisoles. They sound as if we're dressing for an astor ball. Then you have crib, the protected bed. Well, that sounds like something I'd like to sleep in, right? Gives the impression of a good night's sleep, maybe where older people have that little bar there so you don't fall out of bed in the middle of the night. Those things all sound just fine, if not pleasant. How did those euphemisms not only conceal the horrors of the asylums, but also numb the people responsible for oversight who would hear about those and would get that misimpression that, oh, well, you're just sleeping in a protective bed. It must be fine. So how did all of those things play in where they invent language because their real language either sounded too harsh or just didn't exist at the time for these tools they're using? Yeah, yeah. The the names that you mentioned were all euphemisms for handcuffs and straitjackets, essentially. But the crib, that was the most horrible. Um, It is essentially a crib. The only difference is, even in a children's crib, there's like a large distance between the child and the top of the crib. And these cribs for the people on the lunatic asylum, the top of the crib, which was locked down over them, was just a few inches from their face. So they had no room to move. And... The, the the most amazing thing I read, there was a, a Senate investigation, which I write about in the book in 1880, and there was a committee that was assigned to investigate abuses in asylums, and they interviewed one of the men overseeing the lunatic asylum about cribs, and how could you use them? They're so inhumane. And the doctor insists that they are not inhumane and they're not so bad, and he's actually trying to build even more. And the the senator is just, he's just like, you can't, you can't be serious. And he, he, he suggests, well, if you really think that, why don't you spend one night in a crib and let me know how bad it is? And the doctor says, oh, I would. And he said, no, really, do it. With the top <laughs> locked down, just like yeah. a patient would, and, and then get back to me. And there's a doctor, a noted neurologist, which he was called an alienist at the time, described how an excitable person will squirm in it like a squirrel. And I read that, and ugh, it just killed me. But one of the things about moral treatment was there were supposed to be almost no restraints. It was only supposed to be used in cases where the person was just so violent that they would hurt themselves or other people. And yet they were using restraints all the time. And they would justify it by saying, oh, and I should point out, although I tell the entire history of Black Girls Island, I focus on a period of 30 years when an Episcopal missionary 
was working on the island. I used him as like my eyes and ears for the asylum. But at a certain point, all the men were moved to a different asylum on a different island. And from the 1870s on, the lunatic asylum on Blackwell's Island was almost entirely women. And their justification for using restraints to the degree that they were using it was that insane women were on the whole more unmanageable than insane men. And they also claimed that the Irish had imperfect brains and were of a lower order of intelligence, and that when they became insane, their prognosis was unfavorable. It's hard to have understanding when people believe things that we know instinctively now are so wrong. And yet, at the time, I can see these are flustered people that are handling all of these patients dealing with this violence that it's very tempting. And this is how this is how evil always works, right? Never starts out with bad intentions for the average person, but it's good to restrain these people. And it's easy. It's the easy choice. So just you know, chain up a couple of them. Yeah. Then it becomes 10. Then it becomes 20. Then it becomes everybody's. Put a couple of extra people in this room because we just don't have the room. They'll be fine. And then you end up with three people in this tiny, tiny room of just a few feet across and maybe 11 feet long. And it just gets so far out of hand and people end up just leaving. They don't stick around. They they can't deal with it. The people who can leave being the staff, the people on the good side of the bars or the easier side of the bars. So you really get that throughout Damnation Island. You bring us inside how someone like the Reverend William Glennie French can go in there and see it, but he can leave every day. And I think that, as I read the book, helps him keep his humanity, helps him be able to try to maintain this spectator, maintain this oversight that he wants to be giving them. You know, it's not his job, but it's something he's able to maintain. Whereas you have people either who are there for a short time and leave that are treating people, treating in quotes, because they're not really doing much to help them. You have the people who are there, who are sent there, either for mental illness or for some sort of crime, real or imagined, and they can't get out. Then you have the people supposedly in the government supposed to be doing oversight. They're not visiting there. They're not going to go live there. So yeah. he really does have a unique role where he chooses to get on that ferry every day and literally risk his life because he can get some of the diseases that are periodic whipping through all these people oh, in close yeah. quarters on Damnation Island. He has a real unique role, doesn't he? Where did you first meet the Reverend French, and how did you start to see his story helping you talk about those 30 years? Well, this book was a real challenge to research because most of the records for these institutions were not saved, and I've talked about this many times. I'm sure they were destroyed because the people who were running these institutions at the time, and the city of New York, didn't want us to know exactly what went on inside. And so I, I was searching around for something, you know, for, for sources of material um, to recreate life on the island. And fortunately, I was directed to William Glennie French, and he wrote annual reports every year. And you know, because he didn't work for the Department of Public Charities and Correction. He wrote from a very personal point of view. He gave his opinions. He talked more personally he, about the people that he had met and what it was like for him, what it was like for them. He was very honest. And I just got this look inside that I hadn't found anywhere else. And I also copied him because he wrote his annual reports based on he would travel the length of the island each day, going from institution to institution, and he wrote his annual reports based on each institution in the order that he came upon them. And so I copied that exact same structure for the book because it worked so well, I thought. But I loved the Reverend French. He was just such a kind, decent man, and, and he had such limited power to help, and, and he would talk about that. And, and I just felt for him like it killed him that he couldn't do more. And I, I just imagine what that must have felt like, like to every day to go to that island to see what he must have seen and to be so limited on what he could do to actually help it. And he he ended up like he would always carry around in his pockets fruit and candy, just simple little plastic, not plastic, obviously, little bags of fruit and candy, which he would hand out um, to the people that he came upon. Or he would 
pay, you know, bring paper and stamps so they could write letter to the fa- letters to the family or write letters to try to get jobs for when they got out. And he actually went into debt for this and it got out and the people that ran the missionary felt embarrassed that they had this priest who was now running into debt and having to borrow money and so he actually got called on to the, to the carpet for doing this and for spending so much money. He also would bring them the foreign language periodicals and books and things to read the people that were there that couldn't speak English, couldn't read English and he found all the little ways he could. And what a great role model that here's somebody who I can do a little bit. He can't change the whole place. He can't save everybody, but he can give them the moment it takes for that sugar candy to dissolve in somebody's mouth. He can give them that little bit of joy. And that's what he's going to do. And he also impresses upon the people that work there that he's there to help and not there to threaten them when he's going there day to day. They give him so much access. It's really amazing, especially considering later they get a little tick that he's been given a key and he's gone all around. And some people start to feel a little bit betrayed by that. But he goes wherever he can and he does what he can over that course of his life, even at risk to himself, even when it costs him money. I thought he was a really inspiring figure. I was glad to meet him here in the book because when you read a book like Damnation Island, it's so easy to start screaming at the pages and say, somebody do something, somebody somebody take charge, somebody do your job better or do your job at all. Somebody somehow see the wider picture. It's not fair yeah. to the people in the moment because they couldn't see the whole picture. And the Reverend French comes about as close as anybody does to having that wide panoramic view from outside the bars and yet inside the asylums. There's another person we meet here in Damnation Island, and that's Sister Mary Stanislaus. She gives us the view from inside. She's a very sympathetic woman, somebody we'd probably just call eccentric today, and yet she ends up there in the asylum. What does the story of the woman they called the lunatic nun in the press tell us about the overall experience of people who did have bad luck, who were wrongfully incarcerated, or who really didn't belong there? Well, I picked her story because I did think it really did illustrate you know, how one gets committed and what it was like inside and how hard it was to get out. And she was a genuinely difficult, eccentric woman. She certainly wasn't crazy. Um, but being difficult and, and eccentric was all you needed to commit a woman in the 19th century. I would, it, it was it was tough. I I, re- I read conflicting accounts of what she said. You know, different doctors w- would have opposing testimony. But ultimately, I was convinced. Well, I I came across a number of sources. One of them was I started researching um, the Sisters of Charity, the order that she came from. And it turns out she came from Canada. She was from from Ireland, moved to New York, and a bishop in Canada recruited a bunch of women in New York to help him start Sisters of Charity in Canada. And there was a wonderful archivist in the sisters from the Sisters of Charity who found and sent me all these letters that were written about Sister Mary at the time. And they were talking about how difficult she was to work with, but she wasn't crazy. And I also came across court records and read different testimonies about her. But the most convincing actually were from the people, nurses and attendants who had to oversee her and work with her and care for her. And they said they never saw anything to suggest that she was crazy. And those are people that she would have been you know, the least guarded with, like she would be trying to appear as sane as humanly possible whenever she was around a doctor. But around, you know, the nurses and attendants, it would have mattered less. And yet they always said that, you know, she was perfectly friendly, very easy to work with, never gave them any trouble. You know, they had decent conversations. And and that was very convincing to me. That's one thing with her. There's question marks in there. We can't interview her ourselves. And even if we could, we're not trained to know who's sane or not. They still make those kind of mistakes. You can't know what's going on in somebody's mind. As an author, how do you handle those facts? The fact that some of the people so long ago left behind stories that make them unreliable narrators. They're 
falling into that circular logic in some cases of saying, well, of course she was insane because she's in an insane asylum. You wouldn't be in an insane asylum if you weren't insane. So there you go. That's all you need to know. It's tough at times. People are writing, you mentioned destroying the records because they didn't want us to see them. They write not only in euphemisms, they leave things out completely, but even the people who suffered there, you can't always know what is true. So how did you tackle that as an author? Well, you just reminded me, uh, it was so frustrating. I mentioned the Senate investigation that took place in 1880. And I read through 900, almost 900 pages of testimony. And they interviewed everyone. Like they they interviewed doctors, ex-doctors, nurses, ex-nurses, you know, Reverend French. And that's a whole other story about his testimony. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of people and not one inmate. I mean, it just it blew my mind. They're trying to find out about abuses and they don't talk to a single possible victim. But when you talk about unreliable narrators, I actually made me think of another story. It's not this book. It was a previous book of mine, but I had read about, it was from my book about the history and science of singing. And I had read about a riot that had taken place, I believe it was the 1830s, in a church in Manhattan. Slavery was outlawed in New York in 1827, and the African-American community in New York would always get together on July 4th and celebrate their independence. So there was a riot, so they were they had rented a church to have their celebration, and it was on the same night that a choral society in New York was scheduled to have their rehearsal. And they had already arranged beforehand, you know, they asked the choral society if they could use the space that night, and they said, sure, it's the summer, a few people show up anyway, go ahead, go ahead. But word hadn't gotten out to all the choral society members, and a mob that was um, anti-abolitionist heard about it. And so the mob showed up, and they convinced the choral society members that had shown up to take back the church. So they went in, started a riot, um, broke furniture, attacked the members of the black congregation, and... I read all these newspaper accounts about what had happened that night, and each newspaper account was based on their politics. So in the very conservative newspapers, the Coral Society were in the right. In the, the more liberal newspapers, the, the members of the black congregation who had been attacked, they were the victims. I mean, it was right down the line, and it was so hard to find an account that had no bias whatsoever. And what I ultimately found was there were only four people arrested that night, and that was four young black men who were victims. They were members of the congregation there to celebrate. And I went down to the municipal archives, found out who those four men were, tracked down one of them who was so incensed at the injustice of it that he educated himself, learned to read and write, and spent the rest of his life lecturing and writing against slavery. And when he retired, he wrote an autobiography. And in that autobiography, he wrote about that night. And of all the accounts, you would think his was the most biased, but his was the most like just just the facts, ma'am, and described what happened. It was amazing. But you kept digging. That's the important thing. And that's what always impresses me. Sometimes I'll come across something in a book and I'll say, wow, that, that was a lot of work. And I'm fortunate that I get to speak to authors and ask, how did you get that detail? Because it seems like it would have been buried so deep, especially here when you're released from Blackwell's Island. Usually it's going to be feet first, but you end up in a mass grave up in Hart's Island usually, and you're just forgotten. Nobody's going to be digging you up 100 years later like Zachary Taylor or 150 years later or whenever and doing a DNA test on you to find out, yes, you were poisoned or, oh, look, your vertebrae in your neck is broken, so you've been choked to death, this person. They're literally forgotten. They don't get to leave much of a record. In fact, I'm looking at the cover of Damnation Island right now. If that didn't still exist, that facade, we maybe wouldn't even think about it as much as we do. Everything is so obliterated. Yeah. Can you describe that photo for a second? Just remind people that's real because as I'm looking at it, it looks like it could be made up or somewhere in the deep south. That's right there on Roosevelt Island. Tell people about that cover picture and how you chose it. I love that cover. Um, it's a picture of the ruins from the smallpox hospital, which is on the southern end of Roosevelt Island. 
And I actually don't write much about the smallpox hospital because it was closed fairly early on and moved to another island. And it was run by what was then the newly formed Department of the Board of Health. And the smallpox hospital, the building that was left on Blackwell's Island, was used as a nursing school and a place to house the nurses in the nursing school. But it's one of the few structures that's left on Roosevelt Island. There's that, and it's in ruins. There's the remains of a pathology lab that was part of Charity Hospital. And there's the octagon from the lunatic asylum, which I write about in the book. And there's the lighthouse. And that's pretty much it. I talk about often the bodies of the mass grave that's under Washington Square Park, which most people don't think about. You think about when Harry met Sally and all these romantic movies that are there. Well, there's human beings buried there from things like Mm. cholera and all these terrible things that happen. We're literally living on the graves, not just figuratively, but literally in some cases, of the people that lived in New York and thrived and suffered in many cases, but they were real human beings. So I like to be able to remember them. And I love the cover of the book because in this day of digital animation, people could assume that's just something that somebody pulled out of Getty Images or AP out of the generic photos that are just stock photography. But that's really there. And it looks very spooky. And it looks foreboding, though. Again, it's not anything that exploits the people that suffered. Because if you know somebody who had mental illness, and I have somebody in my family who's passed away, my aunt, who I love very much, my godmother, there is a stigma for those people, and you love them, you care about them, you don't want them to be made the objects of ridicule, you don't want them to be mocked and and made fun of. And to not learn the first-person accounts of people, like this woman you mentioned, she gets her hair stolen, they The guard just holds her down, decides she has nice hair, shaves her head, and takes the hair to go sell it for I don't know how much you get from a wig maker. But I mean, these poor people, they just suffer so much. I know. And that happened as a result of the economies that were employed by the commissioners from the Department of Public Charities and Correction. They are always trying to get the cost down. So one of the things they did was they took convicts from the workhouse and used them as nurses and attendants in the lunatic asylum, and that's the result. You, this poor woman is committed, and it's her first night there. She must have been absolutely terrified, and she gets pinned to the ground from a convict who shaves her hair or so to sell it. But, you know, the, the people that they got to work there, I, I mean, it was basically people who were willing to accept a very, very low salary. I looked into it, and the nurses could make more as housekeepers working for a private family than they did uh, than they could at the at the asylum and and the other institutions on Blackwell's Island but there were fewer jobs as housekeepers so when there were none of when then when there's nothing left like that they'd go work at Blackwell's Island and the doctors um the junior staff of doctors were not paid at all as far as I could tell for many years um I found this one ad that said we'll give you board lodging and washing but there's no money but the ad read I guess to make it sound more appealing that it said duties are principally medical and no better opportunity can be had for the study of insanity and what came out in in this investigation and elsewhere was you know young doctors who were often just still students would go there, you know, learn what they could, create harm repeatedly because they didn't know anything. And then once they got enough experience and a better job offer elsewhere, they would leave. As soon as they knew anything, they were out of there. So they didn't even benefit from the fact that maybe you suffered at the hands of some lousy, well, I don't want to, again, mock them, but, you know, or or look down on them. Yeah, you're just learning. It's a student. So even if you suffered at the hand of a doctor and you learned something about it, you'd probably split out of there and leave before he was able to help the person who was in the cage next to you. They just would go once they had learned what they had to learn. It's almost like a twisted teaching hospital happening where they aren't learning anything anyway when they're in these medical schools because not only is there not that much knowledge, but at this point in medical history, you're a doctor based on almost nothing. There's not the school. There's not the testing. There's not the licensing. All that stuff is coming later. So you're a doctor. You hang out your shingle. Oftentimes, it's just because you felt you should be a doctor. You had a little bit of training. And that's what these folks are. And they're 
even the smartest person, again, I keep coming back to it, is so limited by the technology of the time. We mentioned just in passing about that woman having her hair cut off. Well, most of us, because we live here in the modern era, we're picturing what you deal with at the ASPCA where you work and what I dealt with. I'm picturing clipping a belly of a cat or a dog for surgery. That's not what he would have been using to clip this no, woman's hair. No. So if it's not terrifying enough to think of being held down, just the indignity of it, this is probably him using some shears. Yeah. I've seen those and handled those in a historical context for sheep. It would have been two giant blades while this woman is struggling and having this horrifying experience. We have to put our head back in that period and realize we say doctor then. We're not talking about somebody who's in an HMO as a nice, clean practice. Wouldn't even have known something as basic as germ theory to wash their hands before they went there and dealt with these people. As far as not getting paid they also have the opportunity as a perk to catch an incurable disease or a potentially fatal disease like smallpox or tuberculosis. So yeah. who are you getting who are applying for these jobs? You are not getting the cream of the crop just by necessity. Yeah, it was not a great job. I, you know, I, it was after I wrote the book, but I read this very enlightening article. It was in the Times, and it was, I believe, from the 70s. But it was written about what was then called the mental institution and that had a ward for violent and criminal offenders who were deemed mentally ill. And it was talking about the attendance. And you always think of like attendance as being cruel, like one flew over this cuckoo's nest kind of scenario. But I read these attendants talking about how scared they were all the time because they were locked in these wards with patients who were often violent and given no tools or training to deal with it. And they were often hurt and hospitalized as a result of altercations with the patients. And so this one man that they were interviewing said they started smuggling in weapons to defend themselves, not guns, but like batons so that they could hit back with more effectiveness. And they, they said, we know how this sounds, but we were fighting for our lives. And I know we sometimes hear that about guards on Rikers, and we know that it's not entirely true. But in this case, I don't know something about the way he said it. I believed him. I believed that it could be that horrible and that they really were left alone and not given the proper support to deal with this in a better way. So in the 19th century, it must have been unimaginable. You're enjoying my chat with Stacy Horn about her book, Damnation Island, Poor, Sick, Mad, and Criminal in 19th Century New York. You can find her online at stacyhorn.com or follow her at Stacy Horn on Twitter. Lori Gwen Shapiro, who we interviewed about her book, The Stowaway, a young man's extraordinary adventure to Antarctica, calls Damnation Island, quote, a riveting, character-driven dive into 19th century New York and the extraordinary history of Blackwell's Island. Stacy, I love Lori's description of Damnation Island as character-driven because it's so easy to forget the humanity of individuals within that sea of tormented, nameless faces that are trudging through the various asylums. They get off the ferry and we may never see their name in the historical record again. They just disappear from the records. In your research, were there any people like, for example, that woman we talked about having her head shaved or people like that who maybe there was just a brief line or passage about their story and you didn't get a name and you really wished that you could have found out what became of that person? Did they make it or did they end up on Hearts Island? Oh, God, there were so, so many. I, For instance, I put together a list of every woman that had died at the lunatic asylum the year preceding the Senate investigation that I wrote about. For instance, there was a woman, Emma Morrison, I believe. I, I could be remembering wrong. But she was committed to the lunatic asylum and she was pregnant. And what they did was one night they put her in a straitjacket and they threw her into solitary. And I guess they forgot about her, but she ended up giving birth in solitary alone in a straitjacket. And it, so I tried to find out what happened to her, what happened to her baby. I, I couldn't find anything. But I mean, there's endless stories. I found this story of a, a woman named Bessie Hendricks, and I'm trying to 
figure out how I can phrase this, but she was arrested one night with a man for participating in oral sex. And she was sentenced to five years in the penitentiary for that. And he was sent home. And so I tried to find out what happened to her. I couldn't find out. There was a matron at the penitentiary who who was just a terrible, terrible woman. I I mentioned her briefly because Emma Goldman, the anarchist who spent uh, 10 months in the penitentiary, mentions her. And I was able to find out some, but not a lot. And then there was like, so she was like the bad matron. And then there was this really good matron. I wrote about this uh, warden, Reverend William Stocking, who took over the workhouse. And he hired this woman, Sarah Holt, who I'm sure he imagined that she was going to be like his partner in reform. And she would take over the women's side and spearhead change and he would introduce reform on the men's side but she ends up quitting after only six months because she said it's impossible it's like so bad we just have to tear the place down and start over and and she writes this letter to the mayor and you know where she's explaining you know defending herself you know for quitting and but she adds that and i'm quoting her as a Christian people, we are guilty before God of the appalling sin of neglect of our most precious charge, the poor and the defenseless, insomuch as they have not been protected from open-faced prostitution, though entitled to the same rights of protection as the refined demand and enjoy. And I thought, you know, she sounds wonderful. And she was so honest and blunt in this letter to the mayor, but I I couldn't find anything more about her. I mean, I shouldn't say anything, but not enough to really draw a picture that was as illuminating as that letter. You mentioned E.G., Emma Goldman, and I would encourage people and do so at any opportunity, the drop of a hat or name in your case just now, to go check out her autobiography, which is called Living My Life. And you get a real honest view. You were talking about that African-American gentleman and how honest his autobiography was. And she's much the same. And you get to those points where she ends up in Blackwell's and she decides, because there's a big epidemic there, she says, I'll help. And and she ends up getting a certificate as a nurse. She had a really varied life. And it always bugs me a little bit in movies like Reds, for instance, or in plays like Ragtime or the Sondheim play Assassins. They always cast her as this frumpy, late middle-aged woman who's really angry all the time. And I was looking back in old newspaper archives one time and Maureen Stapleton played her in Reds and she said she was just such a joyless, humorless woman. And I said, well, did you actually read her autobiography? I took up for her, even though she's this anarchist with a lot of really extreme views. She's such an honest person and she fights, you know, she goes and tells Lenin off and says, hey, you're you're having mass graves, you're murdering people and you're killing. And what's this is not the revolution that we fought for that I thought we were fighting for and risks her life to escape the Soviet Union and tell people. And her friends aren't too happy. Lenin tells her flat out, you have to break some eggs, meaning human beings, to make an omelet. And there are those precious voices that you get from back then where They are honest. There's such a thing, I think, as writing for history on something like what's happening at Blackwell's Island, and there's writing to be heard by history. Like Winston Churchill said, of course history is going to be kind to me. I intend to write it. (laughs) Many people do write that way, and you were able to go back into this grim subject matter, often grim, and get some of those stories that are not just dark, but then often can inspire you, like the story of Sister Mary. We mentioned her, but she dies in a noble way. It's a tough way, but she dies sacrificing herself for a child. She saves a child. And as I read that, I said, if that's crazy, let's have more crazy. If that's somebody who gets sent here to Blackwell's Island, I was glad that I met her in Damnation Island and that we can talk about her and remember her name, and the people who struggled, too. It's easy to look and say, ah, these backwards, cruel Victorians, they didn't know anything, and we're we're so much better today. Well, gosh, what are the mistakes we're making right now? What are the things that we are doing wrong? Do we ever really take a moment to go and think about how people are being treated in these public institutions in our name that we're funding? Because the taxpayers at the time would have been just like we are today, feel that things are wasted, and we say, really, you're going to spend money on 
understand people that are in a lunatic asylum, people that have problems and people that are prisoners. It's so easy to strip away that humanity from them and for us to condescend and say, well, the Victorians didn't know what they were doing, but heck, we have iPhones now, so we do everything right. In Damnation Island, you talk about that, about the things we can take from your story to pick up the mantle here, to stand on the shoulders of the people who made mistakes and learn from those mistakes. What are some of those things that you think we still don't do quite right and that we can do better just as citizens confronting these things that are happening now in our world? Well, that's why I find it hard to condemn them as I was researching and writing about them, because like every day in my Twitter feed, I read about some terrible thing that's happening in our country or around the world. And what am I doing about it? You mentioned you know, that many of them were backward, and they were to a certain extent, but you know they certainly could see right from wrong. And I even have some of the prison wardens talking about how terrible it was and how unjust it was. And I quote this one warden who says in his annual report, he's basically saying to his bosses and everyone in the city you know, government who reads these things, he said, I couldn't help but notice, and I'm paraphrasing, that you only send poor criminals to me. And we all know the wealthy commit crime. So what's going on here? And he says, you know, it tells me that the wealthy can evade the law and its punishments. And it's the same today. I mean, if you look at who's going to jail, the criminal justice system is just evolved to incarcerate lower income people for the smallest offense, whereas affluent people can commit financial crimes with devastating results and never go to trial, never go to prison. Think about just the idea of a fine. That's already the state. And I've mentioned Emma Goldman, so I guess I'm channeling a little bit of the anarchist, super free person in me. But the, the mere fact is that you have a fine because the state gets to take that money. You know, if, if you get fined for something simple like taking someone's parking spot or defrauding them, that money doesn't go back to that person, right? It goes into the yeah. state coffers. So that's one reason it's good to look back on the past because I think it does give us hope for the future, even as we struggle with the things we do see going on in our world, we could say, we found a way through it before. It's not a time to do what so many people did on Blackwell's Island, people that we meet just passing through your story in Damnation Island and walk away and say, well, what can I do? I'm going to, I just have to find my little piece of the world and I can't help. Do some little thing, I guess, would be what I took away from Damnation Island, even if it's just to carry some candy in your pocket and give it to somebody who's suffering. However, whatever form that might take, you learn that from this book because these were real human beings that suffered and people did go and do things like Nellie Bly did and go there and say, I'm going to find out what this life is really like so that I can bring some attention to it. And I always looked at her story for people will learn reading Damnation Island, but she goes, Nellie Bly being the pen name of this intrepid reporter, Elizabeth Cochran, she goes there. And the part of this story that always struck me was not that she goes there to suffer, not that she knows what's going to happen to her to some extent, but that the only person that knows is her editor. And I always thought, what if the editor gets hit by a streetcar, which happened often then? People used to sit there at Union Square Park and take bets on if people were going to get hit as they went across in front of the trolley, right, in Manhattan, this period of the Gilded Age anyway. And so I thought, this is an amazing thing that she does to just put herself so completely on the line, because if she somehow can't get out of there... It's going to be, well, you're crazy. You must be crazy because you're here. You're in Blackwell's Island. Why else would you be here otherwise? Talk for a moment about what people will learn about Nellie Bly's story in Damnation Island and how that inspires you maybe on the journalist side or maybe inspires other people who are listening to get away from the Twitter feed and remember that that's part of your job is to go there, put yourself a little bit at risk to get the story and tell the outside world what's going on when we don't know. I doubt that I would have the courage to do what Nellie Bly did because she wasn't just putting herself at risk. She really was putting her life on the line. It was that dangerous. She originally planned to get committed and to be put in one of two buildings that were known as the retreat or the lodge. When the asylum was built, it was originally built 
to house 200 and they became overcrowded, you know, within months. So they started building additional structures and these were two of the most infamous. This is where they put the most violent patients. They were also the most notorious. The lunatic asylum and the problems and the abuses there were an open secret. That's why she was going to report undercover. And so her plan was to go in the retreat in the lodge, but they put her in what was called Hall 6. The main asylum is where the patients who were in the best condition were put. And within the main asylum, there were two halls where the absolute most presentable patients were Hall 3, that's where Reverend French had built a chapel, which I wrote about in the book, and Hall 6. And Nellie Bly was put in Hall 6. So if you read her book, she's writing about abuses. She's writing about patients who died as a result of these abuses. And this is in the nicest part of the asylum. So when she got there and saw just how bad it was in Hall 6, she changed her plan and said, no way am I going into the retreat or the lodge. I could be killed. And she was absolutely right. I talk about a murder in the book and more than one murder that took place in those buildings. So I admire her tremendously. It's an incredible effort that she makes on behalf of people she doesn't know. She probably wouldn't want to sit down with most of them in these parts of the asylum. Who would? That's the thing. These are the, they call them the untouchables, right? People that have leprosy and that you just didn't want to go near because you feared for your own life. And often we just don't care what happens to them, right? This is the thing with prison riots. George Wallace, the African-American comedian, he says, why do we stop prison riots? He has a bit on it. You know, you're, I'm going to stab my cellmate if you don't give me cable. He makes very light of it. And he's a real funny guy. But that is because that plays off of that idea where once you get that number and take away your name to quote the song lyrics, you are forgotten. You are just left behind. And this place, Blackwell's Island, had so much promise that it was easy to believe in it. It is easy to believe in that real optimism of the Gilded Age and that feeling that they could do anything after they have that big panic and this idea that the Civil War is won, the country is united, and now Americans can find a new way in the new world to help these people who are mentally ill, to help them live better lives, return to society. But it's built on such a foundation of ignorance. Things like the mentally ill are immune from extremes of hot and cold. I couldn't believe when I read that. I said, How could you possibly think that? All you have to do is observe somebody who is mentally ill suffering from cold and their lips are blue, the physical signs, if nothing else, are right there. Obviously, any anybody would know that that just couldn't possibly be. And yet they accept so many things like that that are obviously wrong. It's the thing that is not. John Quincy Adams in his famous closing for the Amistad case, trying to bring up the humanity here of these Africans who are not slaves, He's talking about the Lilliputians as an example, and he says they consider it impolite to say somebody's a liar. So they say he says the thing that is not true because it's a nicer way of saying it. There is so much of that here in Damnation Island that it really can overwhelm you. And I wanted to thank you again. You did such a fine job of not letting it overwhelm you when you're writing the book and so the reader doesn't feel overwhelmed. How did you confront that? How did you manage to step away a little bit and realize, okay, the book is the book. I'm going to set it aside, but I'm not going to let it drag me down. I'm so glad to hear you say what you're saying because I was actually haunted at the time. It was just so relentless. Everything I read, it was sad. And and you talked about were there people that you tried to learn more about when we were talking about Nellie Blind and you were describing how she wrote. And one of the things I loved about how she wrote was that she talked about the people there and she named names and she told their stories. She was one of the first people to do that, to say, here are some of the people on the side. Here, this is their name, this is what they're like, and and you got to know them. So I tried to track down whatever happened to the people that were named in her article, and I couldn't find out. And so the only thing I can think of is that she used pseudonyms, um, and these were not their real names. People just didn't want to be known, I guess, or she was trying to protect their privacy. If there's a stigma now, there must have been a huge stigma then. Well, heck, even wearing eyeglasses, that was a thing with Theodore Roosevelt when he went out west. They'd call him four eyes, and it implied to them that you had some kind of moral depravity if you were wearing eyeglasses, if your eyes went bad, and he had terrible eyesight. So there were many of these things where today 
something like rolling your eyes, which I was doing when you were saying, you know, this man gets sent home, this woman gets sentenced for four years in prison for having oral sex. And it's, yeah, and I rolled my eyes and then I realized that's one of the things in the book that was a sign of madness. Gosh, I, I mean, if, if that was a sign of madness today, I, I told my wife, I said, you're, you're going to have me committed because she does not like me rolling my eyes, which I do, <laughs> I do on uh, often occasions. I try to avoid it now because it, it uh, could be really drive someone else crazy and then they end up in Blackwell's Island. I said, gosh, it literally could have been anything, a speech impediment. There's a a gentleman you talk about in in the book. There's just so many stories, but there's one gentleman and he ends up in Blackwell's Island and he just has a disability and he gets a little lost and they end up throwing him there and his family can't find him. And remember the limitations on communication at the time. It's an amazing story of these New Yorkers who lived where we live now before us and had a really hard go of it. And their suffering made our city a better place. So hopefully today we can look back on that and learn from it. That's what I would like to take from it. I don't want all of that suffering and all the rough things they went through to be for nothing. I want it to have meant something and us to keep building towards that more perfect union. I agree. The real problem is us. For centuries now, we have been repeating accepted wisdom about the poor, the criminal, and the mentally ill without truly educating ourselves about the true state of affairs and what is going on with these different groups of people. So the one thing we can do is just forget what you think things are like or what these people are like and make an effort to find out what it's really like. Let's not keep repeating these same mistakes. You start the epilogue with the line, they got it wrong. And that's where I want to close our chat is with those four words. The Washington Book Review said of Damnation Island, quote, every American needs to read it. Leave us with your pitch to our fellow 21st century citizens. Why should they pick up your book and learn these stories in Damnation Island and not forget them like bodies in a potter's field. Why should they pick up the book and learn these stories, get to know some of these people and what their lives were like on what's now Roosevelt Island? Well, my answer is really very simple. I may be deceptively simple, but the idea has always been that problem in the buildings, you know, if we build better facilities, everything will be okay. Or if we come up with better procedures, everything will be okay. And technically, you know, these things would improve matters. But the real problem is that we just never follow through on the things that we begin. And best intentions always go by the wayside in, fa- in the face of problems of economics In the end, the real problem is not the buildings, the procedures. It is us personally. It's not the populations we're serving. It's not the people suffering from mental disorders. It's not the people who are from low-income families and having problems surviving. It's not even the criminals. It's us. Well, it's time to pick up that mantle. Time to stand on those shoulders. Climb up there. I really felt that. I felt the drive to go and do something positive and certainly to speak to you. I'm so glad you made time for me to discuss Damnation Island, Stacey Horn. Thank you so much for your time and for your effort for going through those records, for tracking down these forgotten New Yorkers and the New Yorkers who were just in many cases right off the boat, just a few hours maybe even from Ellis Island. Imagine suddenly finding these streets you thought were going to be paved with gold turn into an asylum where you suffer and have to have a really tough time of it. This is a forgotten sliver of New York City history right there in plain sight. It's forgotten no more, the story of Damnation Island. Thank you so much for joining me, for sharing this story. I really enjoyed it, and I wish you the best of luck with the book. Thank you so much for having me. I've had a great time. Again, the book is Damnation Island, Poor, Sick, Mad, and Criminal in 19th Century New York. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there, or even navigate via the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, that banner takes you through to Amazon, and Amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend 
at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra taps of your finger, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. I want to thank Stacy Horn for joining us. She did a real service to history by resurrecting the dark stories buried far below the Roosevelt Island tram and by remembering those people Maybe we can be better people ourselves. Visit her online at stacyhorn.com or at stacyhorn on Twitter. And while you're at it, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean, Facebook.com slash HistoryAuthor, or our Instagram page where we're going to share a few pictures of Blackwell's once we air this episode. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you subscribe on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same on the east. Sign west, sign things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.